Hello, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Jams Tea Podcast, where we spin the jams and spill the tea. And this week, we're coming at you with yet another series of mini reviews, because I think earlier in this year, it's fair to say that we were just like, you know, this is a good year for music, but it doesn't have the sheer volume of interesting or cool releases that years previous have had. And it feels like that all of those records this year has been saving until the last possible moment, jamming it into this final quarter where we have minimal free time because of our lives so we have to scale back and do videos like these so we can cover a litany of projects force ourselves into an area where we can dense our thoughts into a more concise manner and boy howdy do we have a fantastic collection of albums to talk about today we were not sure what albums to cover today like what two albums to do breakdowns on because five really interesting records came out on friday the 29th of september the friday before we're recording this and so i was like what do we cover and so i was like okay let's do another video like their recent quick reviews video where we just cover all of them in a shorter format and throw in a couple of others as well that are maybe a little bit older but that we want to talk about we didn't really get to until now so let's start with a couple of the records that are a little bit older that we've been meaning to talk about we haven't gotten around to yet and I want to kick off with this new record from glitch pop sensation Yule, which is the artistic moniker of one Nat Schmiel, who's a fascinating Singaporean artist with a short but rich career so far. Their particular brand of hypnagogic, you know, shoegazy, ambient, um, dreamy pop music is very much, very much meets the moment really, really well. Uh, it's hard not to separate it from the influence of 2010s dream pop artists like Grimes as well, but it's fair to say that Yule absolutely carves out a space for themselves that is entirely their own. I was originally drawn to them with 2022's Glitch Princess, their last album, which I thought was a really, really strong record. And they've made considerable waves with this new release as well it's got a best new music from pitchfork it's been pretty widely acclaimed across the board jake i want to throw over to you to kind of contextualize this and give your thoughts first on this new album uh, what are your thoughts on yule and how do you feel about their progression with this new album soft scars well i first became familiar with yule a couple of months ago when i first checked out uh their debut record serotonin 2 which is one of the best albums I've heard in terms of just new listens this year. I fell absolutely head over heels with the blend of, again, like you said, that sort of dreamy alt pop that's mixed with a kind of almost acid house danceability on that record that's just very big, very atmospheric, very beautiful. It's one of my go-to records to just put on when I need beautiful sounding music. So after I was that taken with the debut, I went and explored Glitch Princess after that, and I found it to be a really interesting record. It didn't captivate me in quite the same way. It has lots of really striking moments, and it feels like Nat took an attempt to centralize their sound a little bit more and kind of focus it into something that was a little less all-consuming and a little bit more specific to their like artistic persona uh, and that I really respected even if it abandoned some of the things that made me fall in love with that first album I was still curious as to how like how they would continue on from here and let me just say I like this album a fair bit but I think the coolest thing about this experience is just been like it's been another addition to the slowly growing catalog of 
queer and non-binary artists who've released music this year who really seem to be like openly embraced in specifically online spaces. But I mean, people like Yule, people like Eve Toomer, like all of these records are coming out and they're being met with this widespread acclaim and way more attention that has ever been on these artists before. Uh, and it's particularly validating. I feel like uh, the, that you and I can speak to that a little bit is that seeing these sort of musical projects that are a little bit more left of the dial than maybe people in the mainstream are uh, a bit more used to, it's just very reaffirming to see them kind of usurp and take on their own mantle, as I think Yule has done here very smartly, because a lot of what I feel like they're doing on here is kind of taking the sounds that they refined in Glitch Princess and then blending it with things that they've never really done before and then doing it in a very new, very exciting manner. I feel like the biggest thing about this album in particular, Soft Scars, is the omnipresent influence of indie rock, which I I did not see coming from a million miles away, frankly, just because this has not really been an element of their sound up until now. But I mean, the, the usage of kind of like things like more traditional sonic tones and timbres, acoustic guitars, just like instrumentation that you straight up would not expect from a very digital online artist and it gives a lot of these songs a really unique sonic identity and it's a sound that I feel like nobody else is really doing in like a broad sense like I this isn't like the most unique album in the entire world or anything but I would still say that the kind of blend of that glitchy alt pop and shoegaze and mm. occasionally like more noisy and neo-psychedelic sounds it, it's just not something you're going to get walking down the street and there are moments on here where it really feels like Nat is sort of playing to how deliberately eclectic they are I mean take the one-two punch of the opening xwx and sulky baby which xwx is this kind of indie rock thrasher song that like when i put on i was just like am i is this actually a yule album am i getting punked here and then you immediately go into a song like the really slow really dreamy sulky baby and this makes the album unpredictable in a way that I feel like her other records might not have been. And that's to their benefit. This is a completely different kind of album. And that's why I respect it so much is because at every turn, it feels like it's trying to throw you for a loop. And as a result, it has some really, really rewarding moments in here. I, I really do dig the more gauzy sort of dreamier moments on here. Like again, Sulky Baby, I think is a pretty great song. Uh, for You, I Want To, I think is also fantastic. The title track's really good. My favorite thing on here is probably Daisies. I feel like this kind of blends everything that the album does into one song that just feels immensely fucking rewarding. I have a weird take on the way that this album is written because in a lot of ways it does kind of draw from that kind of Grimes, Poppy, or early Rina Sawayama attitude when it comes to the internet, the, the serial experiments lane of it all. Uh, when talking about like becoming a part of the internet and talking about quintessentially modern technological issues. Uh, you know, I, I can't remember exactly what you said, but you were comparing oh, Yulda Grimes I'm, the other week. I'll and you, ha you uh, had something to say about that, that I'm sure well, you what, as a bigger like Grimes fan will probably have more to say on than me. What Yule's lane is, right? And, and they're not the first artists to speak about 
identity through the lens of the the internet age it feels weird to even talk about the 2020s as being the internet age it feels like we're at least <laughs> two posts from the internet age but uh that specifically very what feels like in terms of in a cultural sense like these obviously these things have been going on for a long long time but in a cultural sense what feels like a very new conversation around identity and sexuality and gender expression through the lens of the internet and through the lens of the specific avenues that people have nowadays for expressing and for just coming to understand their identity, the malleability of their identity through the lens of the the various interfaces that they present themselves through, that they interact with, that they're a part of, you know, in their day-to-day lives. Music about gender identity and about sexuality and about self-discovery that's being made now in the 2020s is almost inextricable from conversations about that technology and conversations about the way that we interact with the world and the the way that we access the world now through this you know heavily mediated system of of interfaces and and apps and you know personas and all those sorts of things god if i talk any more about this i'm going to sound like 50 years old but you get what i'm saying right so yule is making music that specifically reflects their experience with self-discovery and identity through this particular cultural moment and what's really stood out to me about how yule's been received specifically you know pointing at things like the the best new music from pitchfork is how artists like yule i think have been well received and have been kind of really embraced on the internet for a while now but it's really more and more in the last few years that we're starting to see that bleed through into kind of mainstream music press and seeing you know the the wider powers that be who typically tend to be older you know picking up on and put you know highlighting and and hoisting up these artists and and making them kind of a part of the conversation way that they wouldn't have been even three or four or five years ago but there's been a real turning point and so as a result of that, there's a lot of hype around Yule in more ways than there would have been in the past. You know, I mentioned Grimes. I feel like Grimes comes up in the conversation around Yule a lot. And that's, you know, on one level, it makes sense because there's certain sonic similarities between the two artists. And in terms of talking about, I suppose, broadly about inter- identity in the internet age, there's a connective thread there. But of course, with Grimes in the 2010s, you know, and I, I don't say this disparagingly because I would be an absolute hypocrite if I, if I pretended I wasn't hugely into Grimes in the mid-2010s. I absolutely was. But, you know, with Grimes in that era, it was all a lot more facile, you know. It was all this kind of like, you know, techno babble, you know, uh, f- fantastic. It's a sense of theatricality more well, than I feel like it's a genuine, like, exploration of this interest, I would say. Well, yeah, it was all sort of fantastical science fiction, sort of like the wonder of AI and the wonder of um, the future of, of human expression, all that kind of stuff. Whereas, you know, with this newer generation of artists, it's less purely fantastical, it's less purely wondrous, and it's more like really deeply tied to a very personal experience of the world. You know, it's emo, frankly, in a way that Grimes never was. And that's not, again, not to hold that against Grimes, it's just a way that this particular new era of artists you know it's not just yule as well it's like artists like katie day as well there's a whole bunch of them 
who are doing this kind of thing and for them what the music is and what they express through the music and why the how the music resonates is a is so much more different so much more personal and so much more introspective than when it was just a kind of curiosity in the 2010s right so with soft scars there's a lot less sort of cold industrial influence and a lot more kind of warm bright buzzy shoegaze and indie rock as you say i think it's a smart and a canny move for yule it makes yule fit in a little bit more with the interests and the things that mainstream music press are more familiar with i'm not surprised that yule has really gained the approval of the bigwigs for this turn because again it's it's a, it's easier to embrace i think than some of her older music oh, yeah. a little bit more esoteric i'm not quite as in love with this album as i was with glitch princess which i still had um some limitations with but by and large i was really really taken with that record this one i think has great moments the first track is sensational it's so heavy it's aggressive it's screaming industrial rock that you know comes from a more familiar place but kind of introduces you to the new sounds the record's going to offer before the rest of it becomes this more you know malleable sort of um dreamy soundscape that allows you to kind of allows you all to express some you know fairly emotionally uh intense expressions of their identity through these very kind of gauzy and emotionally disconnected and hazy soundscapes that you know represent how you know the numbness that a lot of these things induce so yeah and then that's the appeal of the record i agree with you i think that daisies is the standout song mostly mostly because it has an incredible guitar line that it just runs oh. the ground but it sounds so good and um, I, I do think that Yule's presence as a performer isn't my favorite thing in the world, but aesthetically and just in terms of the niche that Yule fits into, I'm a big fan. I do have limitations with the writing. And again, I brought up uh, the the anime Serial Experiments Lane just a couple of minutes ago. Uh, and, and I feel like the, the sort of transhumanist you know, cyber emo attitude of something like that bleeds over into this. And a lot of the times the trappings that those things can run into are very like, you know, I'm your GF and I'm a phone kind of lyricism. But again, it's very Grimes. Uh, and I, the thing is, is that I find that idea more compelling on soft scars than I've ever really felt it just because with artists who take after grimes like Poppy again for instance uh, has a couple of projects that I really really love but that's never been like the central conceit of stuff like this Yule's persona is that of artificiality of you know a program of you know not wholly human and that sort of takes over a lot of the aspects of the writing on here there's a little bit more of a straightforward sound so i think there's also an attempt to pit to pivot into a little bit more straightforward emotional content because a lot of the stuff talks on here about like interpersonal relationships within the context of the internet and it's nothing like new or anything but it does feel honest and I feel like that lets me get on its wavelength, even though oftentimes if you look at the lyrics in isolation, it's incredibly kind of cringe sounding. Uh, and I feel like that has its own appeal because it feels like an AI 
trying to translate their feelings into recognizable human emotions and just constantly failing. Like the ability to communicate is represented by the fact that everything is a bit stilted, a bit angular, a bit wooden. And that's never been pronounced in their stuff up until this point. And I, I find it intriguing. I find it interesting. But I won't say that it emotionally quite has me as much as stuff on her previous records. Like there's stuff on Serotonin 2, like the song Pretty Bones, which I feel like is a pretty solid read for a song about things like gender dysphoria. And that's the stuff that I connect with the most uh, with in regards to Yule's music, blending that kind of glitchy atmosphere and that sort of emotional tone. Uh, and I don't get as much of it here. And also, I just think as well, like Yule's specific brand of of the non-binary experience and the NB appeal, right, is, you know, my boyfriend is an app and I accidentally <laughs> ate some of my own flesh today. That's those are those are their two, you know, recurring motifs. And mm -hmm. they're not that's not our specific brand of of non-binary experience. Mm -hmm. It's definitely a lot of people's, and that's awesome, but maybe not ours as much. All right, let's move on now to the album we're gonna be talking about today that's been out the longest. And in a certain sense, the album that we're talking about today that's been out for the least amount of time. Because the next album we're going to talk about is a new album from Earl Sweatshirt and The Alchemist, Wadir. And it was originally released on the uh, streaming platform Gala Music with purchase options to buy the album as an NFT and animated artwork and all this kind of like uh, online you know, specific release uh, options, but it was not put onto streaming services proper, or at least streaming services that we imbibe in. And there was also like, I don't know if specifically this talk related to this project, but I assume it did. I think The Alchemist tweeted earlier earlier this year, or maybe last year, that he and Earl had recorded an album and released it under a pseudonym, like uploaded it to YouTube under a pseudonym, and no one had found it or found out it was them. So it seems like this is a fairly low-key project that's maybe been brewing for a while uh, comes off the back of Earl's last studio album, Sick, which came out in January, I think, of last year. It was quite early last year. We talked about that on the show. A streak for Earl of very low-key album releases that come with very little fanfare because he's not the kind of guy who likes to do press at all. And he very much likes to let the music speak for itself. I was a little cold on Sick. It was a record. What? And I, I should give a bit more context for Earl, for me personally, without wanting to make it about my experience too much, because otherwise we'll be here forever. But um, I've always thought Earl was immensely technically talented. I mean, of course I do. Everyone thinks that. He's obviously, well, not obviously, but arguably the most technically talented and gifted from a performing from a technical standpoint member of odd future even if he doesn't have the pr canniness of someone like frank ocean or the broader range of appeal of someone like tyler the creator earl's always kind of been the the dark horse whose solo career has been kind of magnetic in a certain sense because he's such a intimidating figure whilst just being this little guy who's who's out there making records <laughs> <laughs> earl's persona um but yeah he's always been this you know incredibly technically gifted performer who also 
has very little interest in appealing or melding himself to appeal more broadly at all. All of his records are fairly low-key in presentation. His performance style is very, uh, generally very muted and gaunt and emotionally highly strung, but also just very monotone it's a weird way it's weird it's hard to actually describe earl in the way that makes him appealing dude raps like mf doom after he just did a molly it's hard to describe the appeal of earl's music because in describing it it only makes him sound unappealing in a weird way and that's one of the cool things about him is that he's this very standoffish aloof and even alienating figure who's also incredibly talented as a performer but also as a writer as well and so as a result of that, sometimes I'm able to kind of key into the wavelength that he's on, as I and many others did with um, 2018's lauded uh, Some Rap Songs, which we have a Record Club episode on that album. Go and check that out. Uh, and then other times I'm more or less kind of left adrift with Earl, as I was with Sick. You know, a lot of technical talent, a lot of great writing, but just not something that sticks with me, not something that I you know, connect with beyond that. And that's really just purely a reflection of myself. So when this new album was released, this collaboration with the Alchemist producing every track came out in August on this, you know, gala music platform as an NFT, I was like, I can't be bothered look seeking this out. I will listen to this when it is put in front of me in a way that I can consume it. And so the day we record this or the day before we record this, it was finally released on streaming services properly though in a different version than the one which was originally released there are some key differences between the two versions specifically the fact that three songs in the original version are not on the new version but they are replaced with three new songs now i did go and check out i listened to the new version specifically i listened to one on streaming services but i did go and check out the old version with or specifically the other songs that were taken off and i actually like the new version more specifically because two of the three new songs feature vince staples who i've always enjoyed as a regular kind of recurring feature on earl's albums I mean, some of my the most arresting music Earl's ever made has been with Vince, I think. I think specifically yeah. the songs he made with Vince on I Don't Like Shit, I Don't Go Outside are some of the best songs Earl's ever made. Not that he needs Vince, but just that they together have a kind of cutting, brutal energy in the way that they play off each other that I really, really like. All this is to say, uh, Voix Dear is the most I've connected with anything Earl's put out since some rap songs. I think it's... Uh, it's not as good as that record and it's certainly i i don't know it's weird it it, it kind of almost is it's a really strong very charismatic and very colorful album and and that is in large part i think due to the presence of the alchemist who really does lay down some just a, a wider variety and array of sounds that you would typically get on an earl album i mean there's something to be said for the muted tone of records like I Don't Like Shit, which really let you kind of fester in that depressive headspace that he occupies. But it's really refreshing to hear Earl be given a bedrock of sounds that's a little bit more varied and still really be at the top of his game from a writing standpoint. There's some really moving songs on this record. I think uh, the final track in particular, which is a tribute to uh, the recently departed Draco the Ruler, uh, ends up being a really kind of emotional finale for the album. 
And yeah, just generally I find Earl to be more switched on, or at least I, I connect with him a little bit more on this record than I did with sick. And while it's, is a very short album as all of Earl's records are. Earl packs so much into these shorter run times. There's so much to unpack with him. And the songs so often are basically just him stream of consciousness. What may well be freestyling. It's really hard to tell with Earl that it's hard for me to get to the end of it and feel like I need more from him when he just sort of switches into this gear and, and lets it all fall out of him. It's tricky for me because it's hard for me to articulate specifically why certain Earl projects resonate with me more than others. But this one just feels like it has a little bit more color in it um, and a little bit more vibrancy. And that's enough for me to feel like, okay, this is the Earl project for me, at least uh, right now anyway, uh, having waited to connect with him again the way that I did with some rap songs. So I don't know. That, that's where I'm standing anyway at this point. I've only heard it a couple of times, so it's still fairly fresh. Uh, Jake, what are your thoughts on this move for Earl and this collaboration with The Alchemist in particular? Well, to quote you when we reviewed the new Spanish Love Songs album, I disagree. Um, <laughs> that uh, was the first time anyone had said those words. <laughs> I'm in a really weird place with this album. Uh, I think it's good. That said, as a, I mean, I guess I'm the biggest Earl Sweatshirt fan on the podcast. Yeah, this is like handily the album of his that I get the least out of. And there, there's there's a couple defined reasons. I can at least put it to you in so many words. First of all, I don't like The Alchemist. <laughs> I We've had our grievances with him in the past. Like we talked about how you know, projects like the the album he did with Freddie Gibbs, for instance, uh, that didn't really animate us that much back when we covered that in the first year of the podcast, one of the first albums we ever covered. Uh, and I still saw the vision a little bit more. I just thought that maybe like it, like that album in particular might have felt like it was just playing to Freddie's sensibilities that didn't line up with the Alchemists. And then we've covered projects uh, of his where he teams well, up Boldy with James Boldy one. James. We're all yeah, really like the Boldy, the Boldy James album, for instance, which I think is a great showcase of the capabilities of the Alchemist as a producer. And here, I mean, I'm sorry, but these beats are fucking boring. Like, Oh my God, this is a 27 minute long album. And there's like half of these beats that are so repetitive, jazz loop type beat production. And added with Earl's excessively monotonous delivery style, which is not any different than what he's been doing on the previous couple of records. Uh, but when you apply that style to these beats that are, again, like structurally from a musical standpoint, I just think a lot of them are very, very one dimensional. And you stick that with Earl's style and it just creates a mix to me that's like oil and water. I, I can't get past how much it feels like the alchemist feels like he's producing for a completely different person than Earl on here. It just sort of feels like he took a bunch of stuff from his back catalog or beats that he didn't use and then gave them to Earl and then Earl just kind of rapped over him. If that's appealing, I can certainly see why the sort of rough shot approach could work for Earl. But to me, it just results in a very stilted, very flat experience. 
And I feel like it's made that much more difficult because as a writer, I still think Earl is in his prime. I find him as compelling as I ever have. I was notably, I mean, I, I was the only person who really cared for Sick all that much, like in the first place. But like, that was an album that I found particularly satisfying because it's Earl coming off this stretch of really gloomy, really insular music that just felt like, I mean, it was a logical place for him to progress as an artist. But at the same time, it felt like he was going into a place with things like the the Feet of Clay EP, where it just sort of felt like he was going so far off the deep end when it came to his sound that he would just disappear into a place that ceased to be musically compelling. So I was a little worried for a while. And then Sick kind of reassured me. It's like, okay, this is Earl in like more of a Doris mode where everything feels a little bit livelier for him, at least in, in particular. But it's this project that I feel like comes out as being significantly weaker by my own estimation, just because while the writing is good, I feel like a lot of the interesting content on this record comes from Earl talking about his relationship with his homeland. There's a lot of more references on here than there ever have been before to, you know, like Africa. We talked a lot about Earl's parents uh, when we talked about uh, some rap songs uh, and how, you know, they were like both these really like, you know, active like civil rights presences and how Earl's kind of been grappling with his connection to, you know, his homeland where his parents come from on certain moments in previous records. And here, I feel like that idea is maybe the most omnipresent it's ever been. And also Earl kind of talking about these ideas through the lens of like cosmic judgment on here. And it lends his bars to being compelling. But even then, the performance style on here, just because of the way it mixes with these beats, a lot of it just doesn't really hit the same for me. And maybe I need to spend more time with it. That could totally be the case. But I feel like I'm now at the point with Earl's music where it feels like his less than 30 minute long album format and his typical construction is starting to feel like more of a limitation than something that he particularly excels in. When he did this with some rap songs, it felt like that project was so dense and so out there that if it was any longer, it would buckle under its own weight. And then Sick is just sort of him bouncing back creatively and doing something that feels a little bit more, uh, again, vibrant, a little bit having him more on the offensive side of things. But here, it's just kind of lost. And I I, I just, I feel like Earl maybe needs to, to, to challenge himself a little bit to maybe rekindle a sort of spark maybe. And maybe that's just my own perspective informing like what I think he should do next. But regardless, I, I think this is definitely a project that's worth checking out just because a lot of people are connecting with it. But at the same time, it's definitely one of the more disappointing album experiences I've had this year. I, I want to get more out of it, but it's just not designed for me to come back like multiple times and feel like that flatters the experience. Yeah, I mean, I do disagree. Uh, I, I, I really enjoyed this. Again, I've only listened to it twice. Uh, and again, it's specifically the streaming version. I think one of the things is that Earl's appeal for a long time has been this weird unknowability that he has, this kind of mystique that he has, this darkness that enshrouds him, right? And then you get into the records and you dig into that and he's actually quite eloquent and effective at prodding behind the curtain and kind of letting you see a little bit more of, of where these feelings are coming from and why he presents himself in the way that he does. 
but still for a lot of people i think that darkness and that mystique is going to be the sort of it has been the appeal of earl for a while it's going to continue to be so for a record like this which feels a little bit more like earl is attempting to make something welcoming attempting to make something that offers itself to the listener in a more of an active way and a large part of that is comes from what the alchemist does and there's an irony to that you know making something that's more welcoming but then maybe earl feeling so strange about doing that that he has to then make it almost impossible to hear without pirating it so there's like a maybe a bit of a compromise there on some level but it has allowed me to connect more with earl than i have in a while so i'm really grateful for this album again i don't think it's a great front to back record i don't think it has an identity and that's really thoroughly declaratively its own i don't think any record has since uh some rap songs so that's really i, I guess the place i'm in with earl is that i'm waiting for the the record that feels as consciously like the next complete step from him and maybe we'll get it sometime soon maybe we won't but uh, until then i'm satisfied with albums like this between the margins all right let's move on to the first of a series of records that came out on september 29th that we're going to be talking about that both of us have been listening to that we've been enjoying that we are quite keen to talk about the first of these is the new album from animal collective isn't it now the follow-up to 2022's time skiffs uh, I mean, we just talked about short turnaround with earl who put out an album in quarter one of last year and has now come back with another one animal collective hmm also putting out an album in quarter one of 2022 and coming back this album we've had reason to expect for a little longer there were murmurings of the fact that the band recorded another album that they had enough material for two albums that they recorded another album after time skips was finished i read a lengthy interview with uh, a really really great by the way interview with geologist for last donut of the night which is larry fitzmaurice's uh substack uh great great substack highly worth following and uh so i read a, a fantastic interview with geologists that really went into lots of detail about where the band have been in the last few years and the process of making these last couple of records but especially this one uh this one came together you know after time skiffs from material that they had been you know working on and playing live and this desire to to put out another record as quickly as possible they've actually wanted this album to come out even sooner than it has but really their um contract with domino mean that they had to wait a certain amount of time before being able to release it um but you know that's maybe a, a positive thing as well it allows that these two records i think to exist more independently of one another than they maybe mm -hmm. would if they'd come out a lot closer together because i think they're quite distinctive albums and they both showcase very different sides of animal collective you know time skiffs was the most you know merryweather post pavilion-esque album that they had made you know, since that era and this feels a lot more attuned to earlier animal collective records like feels and sung tongs to a certain extent but specifically that kind of freak folk but more psychedelic than the, and as opposed to avant-garde freak folk that they were in the mid 2000s and they haven't really made a record like this since then you know they've had stopgap projects they've had things like the meeting of the waters ep that's kind of you know delved into this sort of more contemplative ambient psychedelic space but 
that wasn't really a very satisfying release from my perspective. It yielded maybe one good song, but I suppose I've been waiting without even knowing I've been waiting for Animal Collective to channel the a particular energy and a particular sound and a particular kind of homeliness that I feel like they haven't gone for in a really long time. Uh, time skiffs which we reviewed very positively we talked about we actually talked about that record when we talked about panda bear's album uh that he mm -hmm. put out last year reset which is a great record and we were we took that as an excuse to review time skiffs then as well which was a great album when it came out i still think it's a great album it's a real don't call it a comeback album but it really really is a record that reinvigorated and felt like it was the first time in a long time that animal collective, animal collective had made an album with as much vibrancy and, and life as this record had while having also a lot more substance and beauty. So yeah, Time Skiffs was a massive uh, triumph uh, from my perspective. And there's a novelty that that record has that this one maybe doesn't quite have in the same way. It is more muted. Its joys are a little bit more, you know, you really kind of have to delve into this record to kind of find and reap its richest rewards. And you didn't really have to do that with Time Skips, I don't think. But this still, I think, is a really great Animal Collective album. It was preceded by the staggering 20-minute epic defeat, which is a, a multi-part suite of these psychedelic jam sections that is one of the most rapturous and fantastic pieces of music they've released in over a decade. It reminds me so much, yes, of feels as well, but also of kind of some of the peripheral stuff that came out around the Strawberry Jam era. I'm thinking of songs like Safer, which is one of my favorite Animal Collective songs, and some of the stuff that they wouldn't typically put on an album, some of the jammier, looser stuff that they would usually reserve for their EPs or maybe not even release properly at all. That freewheeling energy is realized and just brought to effervescent life in defeat which you know don't get me wrong this is not a record that leaps out of the speakers and slaps you in the face it is more muted <laughs> mixing wise it's more kind of homogenized it's more <laughs> i don't know how to describe it without making without sounding like i'm being pejorative but there's just more a gooey kind of mix of, of psychedelic atmosphere that these songs kind of emerge from uh, rather than that the songs come first and that the atmosphere sort of sprouts from there. It's a very atmospheric album. It's quite frequently stunning. Uh, it just has these moments that really take me by surprise. I love that this is a real conscious allowing themselves to exist in this jammier space. I'm particularly also really into the song Magicians from Baltimore, which really has yeah. this 10 minute um, runtime and really sprawls and lets you, I guess, just kind of exist in these fantastically enticing uh, psychedelic spaces, just like with time skiffs, which had a, whole, a number of, of highlights, but one of the most striking songs on that record was the closing track, Royal and Desire, which is the song where uh, on basically every album, at least the last few albums where Deacon has been on the record, they have let him sing a song. Yeah. And that was the Deacon song on Time Skiffs, and it was stunning. Deacon, you know, he doesn't have the charisma and idiosyncrasy as a vocal performer of AV or Panda, but he's always kind of stealthily been the most beautiful vocalist in the band. He just has this. He's very soulful. 
very soulful and very just emotional voice. Uh, I take every opportunity I can to recommend his solo album Sleep Cycle, which exploits that the power of that voice yep. to great effect. Um, so he did that on Royal and Zari. Does that again here on album Highlight Stride Right, which is just a stunning piece of music. I, I'm completely. For me, this is an album that it takes a little while to kind of find its momentum. I'm not quite as taken in by the first yeah. couple of songs and I'm not quite as taken in by the last couple of songs either. It's it's a record that takes its time to find a momentum. It's this glorious stretch from about the third song and to the third to last song of just fantastic music. Um, it's not to say the stuff on either side of that isn't good either. I like that the exercise in minimalist acapella that the closing track King's Walk yeah, showcases. Uh, it, it's funny that this is like the second album we re reviewed this year that ends with an extended acapella piece after the yeah. album Radical Romantic. Mm -hmm. And in both instances, it's like a an unexpected and unusual come down that lets you reflect on one specific, very defining aspect of this band. In the case of both artists, this very particular vocal tone and how captivating that can be and how much of the experience comes from that um so it's a record that kind of takes a little while to kind of warm itself up and then allows itself to sort of uh ease off at the end and in the middle stretch is just yeah again some of the most arrestic music that animal crews have made in a decade uh, i'm very taken with this every time i've listened to it i've enjoyed it more uh, although defeat's been a hit from listen one but yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. what are your thoughts, Jake, as someone who's come on to the Anco train? This has been a particularly rewarding release for me because over the course of the past year or so, my affinity for Animal Collective has just kind of snowballed to the point where now I would consider them one of my favorite bands. Coming back to Time Skiffs after getting into the entirety of their catalog after you and Zach made your spectacular video on uh, Animal Collective's entire discography. Time Skiffs was an album that like immediately felt good just because it's a very solidly built record. But as I kept listening to more and more Animal Collective, the more I was just like, this is a great recentering of their fundamental strengths as a band. And they're not doing anything hugely unique even for them on that album. Um, but they're exercising their talent in a way that is flexible and fun and colorful. And it's just a very nice album to take in. What I wanted expectation-wise from this is like, okay, they've come back with time skips. People really latched onto that album. Animal Collective or front and center again because time is a flat circle. So what I want is that this next album, I want it to be messier. I want things to be more ambitious. I want things to be weirder. I want them maybe to explore some of their fringe tendencies. I, I just want a more willfully messy Animal Collective album because honestly, those are the records of like th that aspect of their sort of artistic personas is what I find the most interesting and what I find the most alluring in that a lot of my favorite Animal Collective albums are albums that I wouldn't necessarily say are like the most traditionally solidly built albums ever made, but that endears me more to them. And that is exactly what this album is, isn't it now? Um, there are lots of things about it, though, that I do think are unique in a kind of understated way, I guess. The thing that really, really allured me was that presentation sound-wise, there's almost something medieval about this album. And it made me think of like old, like old, old 
King Crimson, of all things. It made me think <laughs> specifically of the King Crimson album, Lizard. If you haven't heard that album, I highly recommend it to Animal Collective fans because that is King Crimson indulging in like really willfully uncool Renfair-ish kind of music. And I find it really charming. Like, I really love that King Crimson album. And it feels like a lot of the aesthetic, hell, even the album covers to these look kind of suspiciously similar in how they're like arranged scrapbook amalgamates of, of aesthetic ideas. Uh, and I like that because Animal Collective doing this sound in this stage of their career allows them to indulge in something that feels more straight-laced sonically. But when it comes to structure, it's a little bit all over the place in a good way. And that's why, like, you know, sticking a 21-minute long song in the middle of your album, for me, at first, it did, it did feel kind of lopsided. But when you account for the fact that this is basically a third of the record, it's one of the album's absolute shining moments. Uh, it, it took me a while to, like, fully get on this album's wavelength just because I feel like a part of me had to reconcile the fact that, like, while I did get what I wanted in the end with this record... I also just that there was an inner part of me that wanted them to return to the more Raleigh eclectic nature of albums like Feels. And I feel like as they've matured as artists, we're just not going to see albums quite as noisy, as spontaneous, as as out there as they did when they were younger. But that's just because they've matured as artists. That's not to say that they make more boring music now or anything. It's just that that youthful vigor is traded for mature artistic confidence. Yeah. And that is its own form of being rewarding. And that's what I feel like is most like boldly explored on here. This is one of their albums where I really feel like they are the most indebted to their influences. But conversely, in that they find strengths that they've never found before as a band. Like, I kind of agree with you in terms of how, like, the album doesn't necessarily start at its greatest moments or end at its greatest moments, even though I do like these songs. I think, for instance, like, Soul Capture and Genie's Open, like, this is the closest to early Beach Boys and the Beatles that this band have ever sounded. I know that that comparison is, like, often belabored, you know, the whole, like, Brian Wilson, uh, Panda Bear, A.V. Terror, like, all, all of these comparison points. But, like, to me, these sound like very traditionally inspired 60s psychedelic pop sounds. But until we get to something like Broke Zodiac, and then, again, Magicians from Baltimore, there's a lot of things on here that are self-consciously the band talking about lyrically being animal collective i mean like you have that title magicians from baltimore and there's like these moments where you just sort of get these these more personal moments that's why stride right is also my favorite song on here it's got that one lyric on there that's very much like on meriwether post pavilion where i think is is it my girls where he talks about putting flowers on his father's grave there's so much to enjoy about an album like this. And I do think I kind of narrowly prefer it to Time Skiffs. They are, again, they're albums that very much occupy very different places. Time Skiffs is probably more consistent, but I find its high points to be not quite as like mesmerizing as something like this. So if anything, this, just like Time Skiffs, gets me psyched that Animal Collective are at this level again and conceivably could make more music like it what's most satisfying about this record coming off the back of time skips is that they're both very clearly late career in the sense that 
the tone in general is a little bit more muted. The tempos are slower. It's more languorous music, but they both present distinct visions of late career animal collective. They're not records that feel redundant with each other in really any way at all. In a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. this record's kind of the exact opposite of painting with. That record is really short songs, really you know synthetically sugary and just really uh loud and and in your face sounds like really bouncy and blown out synthesizer tones lots of vocal hocketing um just a really just sugary rush of 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 sounds in the form of these like two three minute songs that just kind of bam 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 come and go this is the exact opposite of that. You know, the songs are lengthy. They sprawl outward. There is still color in these songs. I, I get a real sense of fun exuding from songs like A Broke Zodiac and Magicians from Baltimore. That's yeah. part of the atmosphere that reminds me of that early era stuff because there's just lots of instrumental bells and whistles that come through. You know, that these songs are filled out musically with a lot of flourishes and a lot of... Mm-hmm. Um, just intricacies that make them feel alive and vibrant as opposed to just here is a nine here's nine minutes of av tears singing while panda beer plays the drums and they just kind of trudge through it there's just it never feels static in that way even if songs like magicians from baltimore are fairly static structurally there's just a lot of intricacy and detail happening that keeps you animated and it keeps the song moving so yeah it's a really really satisfying album and i'm super glad we have it all right, let's move on to the new album from 10trix Point Never. Again, the follow-up to 2020's Magic 10trix Point Never, which real OPN heads will know. The title of that record was actually a reference to the original moniker that Mr. Daniel Lopatton went by before 10trix Point Never, which was Magic 10trix Point Never, a reference to the radio station Magic 106.7. And I think that that with that throwback, Daniel was really attempting to bridge past and present. Uh, Magic OPN was a record that sounded very much like it was a product of a lot of the collaborations that OPN had engaged in in the wake of his, you know, rise and success and his his, um, soundtracks for uh, Safety Brothers movies and his work with The Weeknd as well. Uh, Magic OPN, that last record, kind of felt a little bit like a victory lap where where Daniel was allowing himself to kind of um, lean into that particular surprise success that he'd had and explore the relationship between the music he's typically made as one of tricks point never and the new directions that that pop crossover uh connection maybe offered him and as a result it's a record that you know exists in a weird middle space between classic opn and the stuff that he's been doing in his collaborations whereas this new record i feel like is much more declaratively daniel lopatin as one of tricks point never taking a step forward compared to records like magic and age of the album he made before magic this sounds less like anything he's done before it feels like a genuinely new bold step forward for daniel while retaining enough signature idiosyncrasy and flair and little details in the sound that make you recognize it as his work it's the most 
extroverted and in your face and bold album i would say that he has made since garden of delete which is still my favorite one of tricks point never project we did a record club on that last year that i would recommend you check out if you're interested this is i mean frankly this is hard as balls this thing hits it <laughs> slaps it's absolutely bug nutty and it is such a breath of fresh air off of the back of Age Of and Magic, which were good albums, but definitely, I think, products of that weird sort of in-between space that Daniel seemed to be in in that particular era. You know, the the, tri the trilogy of albums he made in the early 2010s, Replica, R Plus 7, and Garden of Delete, I think is one of the greatest streaks of music that any artist made during that decade. And I think that... 20 years from now or 30 years from now when we look back on what were the records and what were the artists that defined the first half of the 21st century we will look to one of tricks point never we will look specifically to that era and those records to contextualize his impact i would also extend that as well to the now legendary album he made under the pseudonym chuck person which is his echo jams album which i finally listened to in full this week and <laughs> completely fell in love with that album may well be the most influential record he's ever made uh, considering what an absolute stranglehold that album has in its influence on not just vaporwave and plunder phonics but the broader realms of cloud rap and the way in which music samples are used in, in production in the 2010s and beyond, that record was incredibly influential. So all of this to say, Daniel, and I really want to impress this, will go down as one of the most influential and important musicians of the 21st century. I feel very confident in saying that. I don't say that as any to qualify any of what I have to say about this particular album, but it just hit me this week because I've been listening to him a lot this week and it just hit yeah. me how fucking important he is and how like we, we appreciate him. You know, his records are, you know, celebrated when he puts music out, people pay attention, but I, I really don't feel like we fully appreciate the magnitude of the fact that we're getting new music from this particular person. We're living through this more than anything he's made since garden of delete it feels like an album that is made to provoke and challenge and grab you it feels like for an artist who i for the longest time a lot of the music that he became influential for is quite lo-fi it's quite murky it's very sample based this is an incredibly high fidelity record if you listen to this with good headphones or on a good speaker system it's you know 2010s or ticker levels of refined and polished and uh, expansive and just bold in every direction it's incredibly technically marvelous and it delivers moments of staggering impact that make you feel like the world is shaking around you it's also i think a record that feels frustratingly unformed in certain ways as well more than any other record we're talking about in this particular um, spiel of albums this is the one i'm most sort of torn in two different directions on because on a raw experiential level i find one of tricks point never again to be utterly breathtaking 
but the more I try to, you know, interrogate it and understand, you know, what's happening on a song by song level and what Daniel's doing, the more I find myself kind of grasping at straws. There's a lot that stands out and is impressive technically about the album, but it also feels as though there's very little individual pieces that come together to really satisfy holistically beyond just the impact of the sound and these few moments that really, really connect. It's a, it's a weirdly unfixed album it, for, in a lot of ways, it feels like it's intended to make an impact and to really be some of the most turn that analytical side of your brain off and just let yourself be throttled by the scale of it all. But it is a record that I think offers diminishing returns as a result of that. And that's the thing that's really stung about it a little bit for me is that the more I've come back to it across the week, the less taken with it I've been. I will say though, I think it ends really strongly. I think that particularly the, the last track on this album, and a barely lit path, I think it's called, is yeah. one of my favorite pieces of music that Dan has ever composed. It's a stunning finale for the album. And again, it's a record that has great moments. And I think there's enough of those great moments and there's enough just raw experiential impact from this album for me to, you know, give it a thumbs up. But once more, I'm in a place of waiting for a work that feels as honed and refined and, you know, uh, compositionally complete as the albums that he made up to and including Garden of Delete. Although I will say, unlike Age of and Magic, I do feel as though this is a record that I maybe just don't get yet. That I, I'm, I'm more than those two records. I'm willing to give this the benefit of the doubt, uh, because there's a lot about it aesthetically and texturally that does remind me of other music I really love. So I'm, I'm wondering whether I'm in just in a weird space where I don't quite see the vision fully yet with this. But it's worth hearing. It's uh, an absolute treat if you have good headphones or a good system. It's certainly something that feels as though it has more of an identity than the last two records he's put out but it comes with limitations and i do think that a lot of dan's strengths in composing and creating these pieces that build that have a sweep to them and that have an ultimate emotional impact to them is, is not always here uh, and that's maybe the biggest thing is that i don't quite emotionally resonate with this music and the way that i do with a lot of my favorite stuff from Dan. But yeah, again, it's the record I'm most torn on that we're talking about today. And it's also the record I'm most willing to give the benefit of the doubt because, again, of the magnitude of what Dan has already achieved and how important I think he is. Uh, so that's, I guess, why I emphasized that before I went into my thoughts. But um, Jake, I can I can tell from your vibe that you're also a little bit underwhelmed by this as well. So how would you kind of describe what your experience has been with this album? This was an album that nobody we know has like talked about in very specific terms. So listening to this, especially right after last year, where I went through a phase where I just became like this insatiable OPN fan, where I listened to like literally everything he's ever made. And, you know, that kind of primed me be like, all right, now I get to, you know, witness a new project as a fully fledged acolyte. And the frustrating thing 
is that I completely agree with you 100%. The the mantra of the day with this album is just formlessness. And in theory, at least, when it comes to OPN, an OPN project being formless is not the worst thing in the world just because of the way a lot of his albums are constructed. Not to say that they don't have thought, but because based on whatever he's doing in a given moment, if he's a little bit messy, he can make that work. I mean, we talked about Garden of Delete, which is your favorite OPN album and easily one of my favorite OPN albums. But the difference between that album, which I guess I would say is the most comparable to something like this, is that that album, as we went into in our record club of it, has a very specific narrative. And I'm not saying that this has to conform to a narrative, but I'm talking specifically about the emotional and musical narrative that that album has that I had no idea about. But if you watch our episode, as you explain to me what is happening throughout the narrative of the album, I'm like, of course that's what's going on here. No matter how abstract or esoteric that record is, it's always fantastic at communicating those ideas to the listener in a way that they can immediately understand and resonate with. And on here, I find it like as musically compelling, but emotionally, I struggle with it immensely. Not to say that it leaves me even feeling cold. I just don't know how to feel with the vast majority of it. But I do agree that it ends on a spectacular set of songs. On an Axis, I think, is one of the album's best moments. And as you pointed out, the closer, A Barely Lit Path, is like one of the most traditionally satisfying things on here. To me, though, my favorite thing on here, and one of my favorite OPN songs in general, is actually the penultimate track, Ubiquity Road, which I feel like the final track is really more of the album's denouement, whereas this part of the album, to me, feels like the climax. And as such... It really does feel like it channels all of its best ideas into this bright, shimmering, oversaturated cacophony that I just find immensely satisfying. There are so many different ideas on here. Yell, you compared it to uh, 2010's Autecker. I thought of Oversteps multiple times when listening to this. It's not quite as, like, adventurously off the deep end as something like this. I feel like you can extrapolate and identify all of the singular components of the sound going on here a little bit more easily than you could with something like that. But throughout the vast majority of this, it just feels like you're bathing in a swamp of ideas. And a lot of them are compelling. A lot of them are cool. I really love the pronounced presence of strings on this album, both as like Penderecki style textural flourishes and as just more like solidly built into the compositional aspects of the record. And it is kind of willfully all over the place. It's going in so many different directions and it's exciting in the moment. Like while listening to it, a lot of its moments are like weirdly kind of joyous and I associate a lot of OPN's music with exploring the darker side of electronic detritus. I don't really know if I have the tightest grasp on what this album actually is because no matter how many times I listened to it I just kind of walked away from it being like I'm really wowed in these final moments. I just wish I knew what to make of everything that came before that. I think to a certain degree you know Daniel has if you want to look at his music intellectually, which I'm not saying you have to to enjoy it, but there's a degree to which Daniel's, you know, I'm sure someone could write a great PhD the- thesis on on what Daniel does and what One Tricks Point Never as a project has done over the years, specifically in the way that it has 
looked at the the role and the feeling of nostalgia in an era of of rapid acceleration right so records like echo jams and replica um two of the releases of his that have resonated the most with people in the world are records about these little fragments of the past that linger that get stuck in your mind and stuck in your memory and mutate and melt into something that is barely recognizable beyond the glow of emotion that that nostalgia gives you the feeling of connecting with that nostalgia and that emotion in in the context of, of a here and now that is utterly indifferent to the place where that nostalgia comes from, to the, the the roots and the source of those memories, right? You know, the, the present is utterly indifferent to the past. And that's the feeling I get from listening to Echo Jams and Replica. And it's a feeling that can be simultaneously tragic and it can be uh, inspiring. You know, it can offer a chance for letting go and embracing. the. I find albums like Replica comforting for that very reason is that that's a kind of dark and again, very insular record, but it's sort of couched in a sense of nostalgia that I feel like is maybe the most overriding theme in all of Daniel's music. Yeah. And then you have R plus seven, which just turned uh, 10 this week. Uh, Oh, wow. A great sort of middle child in this informal trilogy that I'm inventing in my head that saw him. I think of him that way too. One of the thing I love about that record is that it takes that sense of, of haunted, fragmented nostalgia and introduces a lot more organic musical instrumentation into the way that's expressed. The organs on that record, you know, the the natural found sounds and the the sampled instrumentation that make that record feel like so intense as an experience. And then like Garden of Delete to me was like the apotheosis of Daniel, was like the final, you know, uh, culmination of his exploration of nostalgia, this their gritty, saturated collapse of, of angsty adolescence into this, you know, bleeding nightmare of youth, basically. And all of the, 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 nostal- the nostalgia that we have, but then the ugly reality of those memories that we kind of obfuscate or lose when we kind of look back and when we think about them, think about the past and what it means to us. My point with bringing all this up is that with his work from particularly from Echo Jams through to Garden of Delete, I feel like he's so thoroughly explored you know, how technology and the pace of technological development affects our relationship with the past, that ever since then, it's felt like he's kind of been sort of wandering around these themes and not really kind of doing anything or presenting any ideas to me that feel like a new you know, step for him. It's kind of been the same sort of here's one oh tricks point never, you know, you know, exploring the relationship between these, you know, uh, different sounds, the past, the present, the future, all that kind of stuff. It doesn't feel like to me that Daniel has presented, at least from my perspective, at least in terms of what I connect with, anything um, new or challenging or surprising. Not that an artist has to, but certainly that because of how impactful and challenging and and meaningful that work he did between 2010 and uh, 2015 in particular has been to me, I, I do end up, you know, wanting some of that from Daniel, wanting some of that again. And it feels like his more recent records have just been like Daniel making music, you know, the, the conceptual stuff hasn't really yeah. done much. And so when you get 
feel as abstract with it as these songs do compositionally and musically, it gets a little bit harder to connect. And that's why I give it the benefit of the doubt because yeah, same. I do feel there is a logic to it. I do feel there is some clear compositional care that's being put into this album. I just don't quite understand it yet. And I don't quite have a, a, a level on which I appreciate it beyond just this sounds cool. We'll see what happens over time, though. It's definitely going to be a record. It already feels like a record I'm more inspired to come back to than his more recent ones. Mm-hmm. I listened to it five times this week. It's uh, really four. exciting, uh, you know, experientially, and there's a lot of cool stuff that it does. But yeah, I am waiting for Daniel to really present something that challenges me and stimulates me more intellectually, I guess. I don't know. Maybe that sounds really, really stupid. Anyway, let's move on. We spent enough time on that. Let's talk about something that's definitely not intellectually stimulating at all. (laughs) So ridiculously stupid in the best way possible. Let's talk about the new album from Code Orange, The Above, the follow-up to 2020's Underneath and its remix album, What Is Really Underneath. Code Orange, if you don't know, are an industrial metal band uh, originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania that have been around for about 15 years now. They've released a string of records that have really pushed the industrial metal in the modern era into this more you know, hyper-modern, ridiculously synthetic and extreme place. You know, the records they make are you know, patently ridiculous. They're over the top. They are a lot of fun as a band. I haven't actually had the chance to dig into a lot of their earlier music in full and give it the care that it deserves, but I have listened to this new album and boy, oh boy, is this a lot of fun. It, 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 it's, it sees Code Orange taking that, you know, brutal, brooding, but also really tongue-in-cheek industrial metal sound and fusing it with a lot more 90s alt metal and new metal. The result is a record that is just so fundamentally ridiculous at every turn, but also hard as hell and so much fun. Jake, I want to hear from you. What uh, do you think of this new Code Orange album? And what do you think the appeal of Code Orange is for you with this record? Of all the albums we're talking about this week, I never in a million years anticipated that the most thought-provoking, I guess, within me was going to be the Code Orange album. I'm a little bit more familiar with their previous work uh, than Riley. I've listened to their the, their first sort of big album, Forever, which I was a, a big fan of. I, I thought that that was like really fascinating blend of like Converge style metalcore, but with again, that sort of 90s alt metal, almost nine inch nails kind of slant and how they would occasionally go into like bits of like genuine dark ambience in between these crushingly heavy moments. Um, and it's a really unique vibe. I really dig it. Uh, I still need to hear underneath just because I've kind of been assured by people more in the know that that's probably the Code Orange album I'd gravitate to towards the most. Uh, that said, of the two albums that I've heard from them, I really like Forever. I think I kind of narrowly prefer this album, honestly. In many respects, to me, my response and appreciation of this record directly correlates to my affinity for last year's Impera, where a metal band that's widely been embraced by online music nerds for like their earlier, admittedly sharper, suddenly kind of finds that they're embracing a sound and style that is in every respect monolithically uncool. 
And this creates an interesting response from the public at large, many of which are metal purists who never cared for this band in the first place because of how accessible or widely appealing they are. And they get to leap on the train to decry this band as never being all that good to begin with at the first opportunity, using whatever recent excursion as validation so they can get their aha, see, moment. And like, I'm not trying to be deliberately unflattering to this album's detractors, of which there are apparently many. There's many legit grievances to be had here. And hell, I even think that this is far from perfect. But from what I've been reading lately, it feels more like people are letting their opportunist tendencies dictate consensus rather than actual engagement. Because frankly, I think this album is bordering on the edge of legitimate greatness. Code Orange don't pussyfoot about across this entire album. They are very obviously, very clearly embracing new metal in its many facets, blending slicker alt metal, traditional industrial metal and hardcore music, occasionally bits of rap metal and post-grunge, in what I see and interpret as an earnest tribute to music that let's all be real, is stratospherically overhated. We've had our misgivings with bands like Limp Bizkit in the past, but this podcast is largely speaking a pro-new metal space because we ride hard for bands like Slipknot, like System of a Down, Deftones, Linkin Park, and even Korn on occasion. There's a feeling of new metal revivalism in the air as of late, but I think what's always kept me personally from fully buying into the newfound enjoyment of this very uncool, very tasteless genre is a lack of commitment. New metal revivalism exists now, but mostly on the periphery of modern metal. You can see it in the bands like uh, the Callous Dowboys, for instance, but it's an aspect of their sound. It's not really a full level of commitment, which is fine. I, I love that last Callous Dowboys album, but it does mean that there's been a code orange shaped hole in this new wave. A lot of OG new metal titans are kind of still an uphill battle for me personally, because well, I mean, to put too fine a point on it, I view this record in the same vein as something like Olivia Rodrigo's latest album, Surprising Comparison. It's a record that takes a very distinct source of inspiration that, in its heyday, was designed primarily with the longevity of its singles in mind and very little else. As I think it's often the case that the CD era kind of made new metal a genre that was rife with structural unevenness, inessential songs, and album construction that just isn't conducive to how people like us listen to music. Here, Code Orange very smartly take everything that works about new metal, and I do mean everything, and blends it with their existing very savvy sound and applies these ideas within a package that's actually designed to be consumed as a record from front to back. The synthesis results in an unpredictable, dynamic listening experience that gives me exactly what I wanted from a hard-hitting Code Orange project and something new and fresh. From the Nine Inch Nails-tinged opener to the Linkin Park-inspired balladry of Mirrors, this is full of moments that feel like earnest displays of love for something ugly and gaudy. And frankly, it's hard to imagine somebody doing this any better than it's done here. This album has bouts of greatness when they lay into you with these powerful mechanical riffs that are often coupled by really interesting versatile vocal performances solid song hooks across the board and an untempered savagery that i think any new metal band in their heyday would struggle to reach now 
obviously nothing here is reinventing the wheel, but I would still argue that it's unique, that it's skillful enough on its own to sort of risk running into huge roadblocks. That's not to say everything blows me away. I find the leanings into post-grunge in particular to be a bit hit and miss, as often these songs can feel like they stay in one gear the entire time, and their simplicity both lyrically and instrumentally just doesn't play to the things that this album truly excels at. It's definitely messy, but it's deliberately messy, so that it can cover the vast array of styles within new metal and add that modern spice that feels rich and powerful and legitimately quite filthy. I mean, there are points that this, this album mixing-wise resembles ministry more than anything else. There's nothing clean about it, which I could see being a turnoff to some people, but to me, it's a sign of a commitment to an aesthetic, and it works well. It's some of the most fun I've had with any me metal record this year, and while it's far from perfect, I think people are really selling these guys and what they're doing here just a little bit short, frankly. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't want to... we got to keep things moving anyway, so I don't, I don't want to pad this out. I could pad this out. I'm not going to. I'm just going to say echo everything you said this is stupidly fun and stupidly hard we talked about take shape one of the lead singles with uh that billy corgan feature we talked about that in a now segment earlier this year and you know what we said then was like this is hard as fuck and the best thing that billy corgan has done in several decades and i stand mm -hmm. by that still it's, true it's my favorite song on the album frankly and puts a big shit eating grin on my face the entire time but i do want to shout oh, out yeah. the you know even within this ridiculous over-the-top commitment to this more tongue-in-cheek you know new metal fetishism i do want to like give the album props for the diversity that exists within it as well particularly the songs that um co-vocalist and bassist reba myers sings i think it was the mm -hmm. second single mirror um that's one of the songs that she sings on and that's my second favorite song on the album I yeah think same incredible ballad as well and when you have an album that's just doing big dumb riff in your face goofiness that can also pull off the ballads as well as this record does as well that's the thing that really makes it feel like Oh, those record. fucking watery guitar tones on Mirror. Oh, yeah. they're so... Like, it's a beautiful song. Like, legitimately yeah. gorgeous that, sounding. Stunning. Her vocals are fantastic. And that versatility is the thing that makes the record feel like... Or that it's rounded enough for me to really be able to fully get behind it. Um, but yeah, for the most part, the appeal is just how stupidly hard it goes. Mask of Sanity Slips, uh, Grooming My Replacement, and Snapshot are other tracks as well that really, really... Ah, oh, Snapshot is so fucking hard! Yeah. Ah. It's ridiculously fun. Uh, the album's a bit long, and it does, I think, have most of its best moments in the first half. But, you know, all this sort of standard blah, blah, blah criticisms that you could lob at any number of albums that are good but not great or whatever it's a worth mm. hearing it's it's entertaining as all hell and it's got me so fully just completely keen to dig back into the code orange um discog and really just inhale all this music because i like your parallel with the ghost album from last year impera i do i, I think that is a really good parallel because i enjoy that record on a similar level to how i enjoy this record where it's like here's a band who's always been really really cheesy who's always borrowed in the case of ghost from you know you know uh, ridiculous glam and hair metal 
from the 70s and 80s and Prague to a certain degree as well. And just kind of, you know, turning the dial all the way to 11 and just kind of taking that to its logical extreme. And that was really, really fun and exciting. And this is seems like the same kind of thing as well, even though I have a bit less context for this album than I did with Ghost. So yeah, just fully in the tank. It's like someone has finally made a record where like every single song is expressly designed to be posted on Crazy Ass Moments in New Middle History on Twitter. That's exactly what I thought of while listening to it. It is the first perfect. Crazy ass moments and new middle history core album front to back. And the whole I, thing. I that sounds like it should be unbearable, but it's it's just it's awesome. I the only thing unbearable about this, I just want to take a moment to read the final line of the top review of this album on Rate Your Music, which is this is the soundtrack to Sonic and Cultural Homelessness. <laughs> <laughs> Cultural homelessness is an amazing turn of phrase for so much <laughs> of what's going on in music in the last five years or so. Cultural oh, yeah, is that that's going into my lexicon. I love that as a term. Without the musical cultural homelessness, this podcast wouldn't even exist. So okay. there's a bit of there's a kernel of truth in there that yeah. we do what we do because of the state of the union of music. Yeah. So let's move on from that little interlude of silliness let's talk about something that's a lot more it's got a lot more meat on the bones and one of the records i'm going to be coming back to the most this year not just out of enjoyment but out of a desire to really fully crack the nut and just kind of pass Mm -hmm. all the insides which is the new album from armand hammer we buy diabetic test strips We've talked about Arm and Hammer before. We reviewed their last album, Haram, on the show in a much less disciplined era where I was basically spent an hour analyzing that album from front to back. Uh, I, it, was, I, it was an hour and 45 minutes. Well, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure that wasn't all <laughs> me, but yes. Um, it was probably mostly me. There was just a moment where this was an artist I had been discovering, and that was a record where I connected with them on such a level that I just had to... I didn't have any kind of skill with concision and arguably maybe I still don't. So I couldn't really condense what was impressive about it. To me, I had to just kind of crack the nut completely. I had to just let the floodgates open and talk about everything. I'll refrain from doing that with diabetic test strips. I, to be fair, haven't spent as much time with it as I had spent with Haram when we reviewed that. But I have listened to this album three times and it's another fucking great Arm and Hammer record as well. It exists mildly in the shadow of Billy Woods's album from earlier this year, Maps, uh, which is still one of my three favorite albums of the year. Uh, we we rapturously reviewed that record. It's that was an utter triumph from Billy. And you know the thing with Arm and Hammer, I feel like has always been because of the success of Billy's solo career, is that it's often meant that the other half of the partnership, which is Elucid, has gone a little bit overlooked. Uh, certainly less talked about in general. And so I think while Billy is one of the most authoritative and commanding voices in certainly in abstract hip-hop, but I would argue in hip-hop in general of the last few years, Elucid is every bit as commanding, maybe like 20% more cryptic, but also considerably less valued than he deserves to be. And mm. while the beauty of Arm and Hammer is that the two have such a synergy 
that you never feel as though one has a greater presence or one is more attractive as a voice than the other. I mean, the whole point of what makes Armand Hammer work is that they write in distinctly different ways. They're both abstract writers. They're you know, writing takes some unpacking. It's not always clear, you know, what they mean about with every single thing that they say. And there's such a, a density to the crypticism of their prose that it's a lot to take in. Uh, but they write from different perspectives and they do have distinctly different styles. And I feel like Elusive Style in particular has gone a little bit unsung and is maybe even the most compelling thing about this particular record, which has a lot going for it uh, for an Arm and Hammer record as well. It is the most expansive sounding Arm and Hammer record that has been released. I think certainly that I've heard. It has the widest variety of of colorful texture and production credits as well. Lots been made of the songs that JPEG Mafia has produced on here as well. But really, this is a laundry list of almost everyone affiliated with Backwoods Studios, not least the head of the studio, Willie Green, but also a number of the regular production crew members, names like DJ Haram and Seb Bash and Child Actor and Preservation and Kenny Siegel and Messiah Music and Steel Tip Dove. Many of these names we've mentioned in previous reviews of Backwoods Associated Projects. Uh, all of whom are giving their A-game on this record as well. LP also shows up to produce one of the most magnetic beats on the entire album. You have ridiculous features from Pink Sifu, uh, Jungle Pussy in particular, who I think mm -hmm. steals the show on both of the songs that she's featured on. Yep. It's a ridiculously kinetic, enveloping record that is... You know, simultaneously, from a production standpoint, just from a musical standpoint, it's the most, I think, extroverted and, and colorful album that Arm and Hammer have made. But it's also, in some respects as well, one of the most avant-garde. Uh, the, the beats that JPEG Mafia and Child Actor and uh, Kenny Siegel contribute, among others, are some of the least sort of coherent and most sort of murky and, and formless and, and unsettling that I've heard on an Arm & Hammer record in recent years, all of which is a positive because it, the atmosphere on this thing is, is electric. The performances are, are irresistible. You have a degree of, of humor and a degree of tongue-in-cheek emotional variety that comes across in this record just from the song titles alone, like Woke Up and Ask Siri How I'm Gonna Die, Don't Lose Your Job, Y'all Can't Stand Right Here. Um there's a lot of character and, and, and flair and it's less, there's obviously density in the writing and it's obviously, you know, it, it begs to be unpacked. And in fact, I would uh, direct anyone who wants a substantive engagement with the real core themes and ideas of the album to go and watch Professor Sky's feature length video on this album, <laughs> which I think is one of the best things he's ever done a ridiculous level of depth and unpacking that has completely shaped how I engage with this record. And it's another great Arm & Hammer album. If I had any critiques, it's it may be some of the most magnetic material is more in the first half, I suppose, in the second half. But even then you have the, the snarling base of Empire Boulevard and the final track as well, which is really, really startling and ends the record on a really effective note. I feel like anybody else would risk kind of oversaturating themselves, but whenever Billy and, you know, company, of course, drop, be it solo or collab, it's 
always a welcome addition to any year's roster. This is obviously no exception since I basically agree. And this Armand Hammer album brings all of the excellence displayed in the duo's last album and then some to the point where I think it's not substantively an improvement over something like Haram, but it's definitely something that I dig a lot more. Uh, we kind of went into an agonizingly exhaustive detail on Haram in 2021, and the prevailing takeaway I had from that album was that Billy and the Lucid were, you know, as sharp and as captivating as they ever have been. But uh, The Alchemist, by contrast, was, as I often find him, relatively inconsistent when it comes to complementing the two core performers. Half the beats on it felt really vibrant and colorful. Half of them felt like little more than wallpaper for the real reason that you're there, which is, you know, of course, an S-class helping of considered, insightful, brutally effective, Afrocentric perspectives distilled into rapping that's often as direct as it is esoteric. But even this decently sized bugbear couldn't hold that album back from still being largely great. But I have yet to hear a project from them that melds together everything that could make a hypothetical perfect Armand Hammer record a perfect Armand Hammer record. Less because the parties in question aren't capable and more because of the raw density of their music is just a balancing act that even the best currently doing it would struggle to maintain. And in that respect, when it comes to the sound, I've never found them more compelling than I do here. You could theoretically label this sound uh, of this album being kind of like scattershot, but honestly, it feels suitably boundless to me in a way I feel capitalizes on the potential of the concept of this duo to such a degree that I sincerely hope this approach of getting multiple high profile producers like LP, JPEG Mafia, or, you know, going into the Backwoods catalog to provide great production work all across the shop and less focusing on like uniformity is the lane that they stick to because I think it does nothing but open the possibilities for creative longevity. I feel like this is really capitalized on when looking at the album's structure, which to me, I feel like is another notable improvement on Haram, where the opening third of this album is comprised of some of the most abstract, ambient, and quietly unsettling beats and spaces, and it lures you in deceptively into kind of the middle stretch of the record, which, relatively speaking, I think hits like a fucking atom bomb. These beats are loud, they are percussive, they are angular, they are clattering, but they're still decorated with detail, and it mainly specializes in giving these songs a sense of head-bobbing momentum that doesn't really relent until that final leg, which serves as an effective come-down for the record. Topically, I kind of feel like this is well-trodden ground for Billy and Elucid, but their respective approaches and complementary nature as the fundamentalist and the guy who is not that feels as though their insights and dissections never feel like they lose potency. Armand Hammer is designed to not lose steam if you give their records the proper time and attention. I still can't manage to find myself attaching uh, as strongly to these as Billy's more solo-oriented material just because he's such a confident artist now that plays so strongly to what I value in hip-hop. But that's probably more of a personal preference thing because there's no less thought, there's no less brutality, and there's no less passion in this than something like Aethiopes or Maps. For me, though, they haven't quite cracked the code on how to perfectly orient themselves for like a holistic record that rises above great or very impressive 
perspective. But the middle stretch here is simply one of the greatest runs of music uh, either artist has under their belt. So frankly, they are getting dangerously close to potentially making an album that enters masterpiece territory. Give them another six months and they'll probably get there. Yeah, it's worth noting the album was formed around a jam session that was constructed between jazz musician Shabaka Hutchings, who you'll know as the saxophonist for Sons of Kemet and Comet is Coming, a child actor who produces a song on this record but is also a keyboardist. Willie Green is the engineer and uh, Elucid as well. That They laid down a whole bunch of music, basically, that formed the bedrock of the beats on this album. They brought in their product, various production collaborators to kind of do what they would like, do what they will with it and shape the album. And so that bedrock of, of music from which a lot of these beats come gives the record a real sort of earthy feel and allows mm-hmm. each producer that contributes to kind of find a liveliness and find a kind of color from that bedrock in their own distinct way. And I think when the record, I agree with you, when the record hits a stride of energy from about song four through to song, well, really through to Empire Boulevard, I would say, it just has such a electricity to it that it's so it captures you and it captivates you consistently through that stretch. Yeah. It's, it's a remarkable record. It's another great album. It's kind of easy to take them for granted when they happen, but I adore this so much. I, 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 it's a delight to spend time basically having these incredible wordsmiths wax lyrical constantly in your ear and having their taste for great production collaborations and also great vocal features really keep the experience seasoned and active and fun so i think that you know it feels weird to call an arm and hammer record fun but i think this might be the first fun arm and hammer album even if it has a lot of of darkness and introspection and 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 social unrest uh, inside of it That brings us to the end of our discussion of a whole bunch of albums today. Let us know what you think of any of the records we've talked about. Do you agree with us? Do you disagree? Do you have a different perspective? Especially if you do, let us know in the comments below and we can continue the conversation down there. If you want to go above and beyond and support us directly for just $1 a month, you can hit the join button, become a member of the Jams Tea family, get your name and the title crawl of every video on this channel. Plus, if you want to recommend us some music to talk about in one of our Now episodes, your recommendation will go to the top of the pile. Until next time, though, folks, rock over London, rock on Chicago, BMW, the ultimate driving machine.